This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Hello everyone and welcome to The Advice Show. From advising clients to practice management, this podcast will give you UK and global insights into the financial planning profession. I'm Chloe, a reporter at New Model Advisor, and today we are talking about fund size. I am joined by Adam Rackley, fund manager at Cape Breath Capital, and Adam launched Cape Breath Capital to combat what he perceives to be some of the biggest problem in the in the industry, the first being fund size and its impact on performance, and the other one being fee structures and how Sometimes they don't really align with the interests of the investor. Um, so today with Adam, we're going to talk about why fund size matters and what it means tangibly for um, advisors. Um, so Adam, to start off, kind of a three-pronged question. Can you tell me about yourself, your fund and your overall investment philosophy? Sure. Um, thanks for having me on, Claire. I'm excited to, to be here. Um, so um, a bit about myself to start with. Um, so I've launched uh, Cape Wrath Capital in 2016, and we're a single strategy manager. Um, I've always worked, well, a, a, apart from a brief stint in the army, I've always worked in and around equity research and fund management. So I've been in the markets for the last 20 years or so. Um, I'd say the first seven years of my career were fairly conventional. So I'd started on a graduate program, uh, and then I moved on to another firm, Spent five years um, at a firm called Montanara Asset Management, um, firstly as an analyst and then as a as a portfolio manager, looking after UK and European uh, small cap equity strategies. Um, and then I left the city uh, in 2010. Um, I wanted to spend a bit of time exploring my own investment philosophy. And I had a kind of a bucket list of things that I that I wanted to wanted to do. So um, my um, I got got married, um, lectured in finance, um, became a dad. My wife and I moved to India for eighteen months, where we lived and worked in Mumbai. Um, had a, a couple of adventures, um, and uh, yeah, did all sorts of kind of fun stuff. And then came back to London in twenty fifteen, and then launched Cape Wrath in 2016 um, and the I mean Cape Wrath is a, a UK equity boutique um, delivering a low-cost high conviction stock picking with what we call a differentiated value strategy um, and by differentiated value strategy really what we mean is we focus on two things first of all we're looking for capitulation events as ideal entry points so by a capitulation event, we mean a situation where existing investors are selling out of a position for um, emotional rather than rational reasons. So it could be that the stock has historically been kind of quality growth type stock. Maybe it's had a series of profit warnings over a number of years. Um, the share price has shrunk such that the share is now a kind of de minimis position in that portfolio manager's portfolio, but it's 
you know causing them a lot of kind of anguish because of the losses they've incurred their their um, investors are asking lots of questions about the holding and there comes a point where for emotional reasons it becomes you know easier to easier to exit um, the position um, and you know we we find that those can be ideal entry points but we need to do a lot of work obviously in advance to understand whether this is a kind of value trap or a genuine value opportunity and kind of value traps being the biggest risk facing um, facing value investors. Um, the second thing we look for is a opportunity for a narrative shift. Uh, so this is, I mean, the way we see it, there are lots of different narratives in the market that determine that, that are ways that different um, different groups or individuals kind of in interpret the story around a stock. So you've got um, existing shareholders, you've got short sellers, you've got the management, you've got the press, um, you've got sell side analysts, and all of these different groups have got kind of different different narratives. And what we look for, and, and at any one point in time, there'll be one of these narratives which is dominant and which is kind of driving the, the valuation of the stock. Um, and we're looking for opportunities where we think there are a few catalysts that might cause that narrative to shift and therefore drive a re-rating to what we perceive is is the kind of fair value for mm -hmm. for that stock so that's a bit about um a bit about what we do at cape wrath and um i seem to understand as well that one of the characteristics is that it's it's fairly small um fun in this capacity on 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 the size um can you tell me about how do you think fund size affects performance? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we've been quite clear since launch that we've got a, a soft close of 100 million sterling and a hard close of 200 million, um, which is um, for, for many firms, that's that's seen as far too small. I mean, for many firms and for some, some, some potential investors um, mm -hmm. as well, actually. Um, you know, many firms would look at, you know, a few hundred million as being a kind of yeah. minimum, you know, profitable size for a fund and would have aspirations to grow their funds into, you know, kind of multi-billions. Because obviously, from a business perspective, uh, the bigger the fund, the, the more profitable the business is, because uh, it's a, you know, highly operational leveraged industry, a lot of your costs are fixed. And so, you know, bigger um, AUM equals um, bigger fees, you know, and that kind of drops through to the bottom line. So there's a clear incentive in the industry to, to grow bigger and bigger funds. Um, I mean, I think the key, the key issue, um, as we see it, is that uh, size will always impact on performance. So, you know, if you're managing a hundred million pounds versus a billion pounds, that, that step up in size is going to reduce the pool of companies that are available mm -hmm. for you to invest in because of liquidity reasons. Um, and so by reducing your opportunity set, by definition, you know, you reduce your opportunity to, to create alpha. So, um, so size always impacts on performance. And, and I think, you know, for the most part, firms approach this problem by saying, what's the most we can justify managing so that the impact of size on performance is kind of reasonable? What can we get away with, if you like? Um, we've tried to turn that question on its head and, and say, well, size always impacts on performance. What, what's the least we think we can manage it and still have a viable business? Um, so we've really put the focus on on, on performance rather than rather than on 
the kind of business mm. profitability. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> it um, it seems like proponents of, of big funds seem to have quite kind of two big arguments in terms of, of price, you know, so economies of scale, making them cheaper, and then the risk as well. And there's supposedly less risk because there's some sort of safety in numbers. What do you kind of say to those two arguments in particular? Trustnet did a study of uh, the lowest cost actively managed funds uh, in the UK and across developed markets globally. Uh, and our fund, the VT Cape Breath Focus Fund, was the third lowest actively managed fund in the UK. And arguably, the the, the first and second lowest costs were, were, were kind of barely actively managed, to be to, to be honest. So, I mean, I think that really tells a lie of the, the point about price. You know, you can, uh, you know, we, we, are, we are able to have a, a low cost fund dis- despite our small size because we have a low cost base and we also subsidize some of the expenses incurred by the fund itself um, so large doesn't necessarily mean low cost um, and then secondly um, I mean I, I I've I haven't really heard an, an effective argument about why large funds are a lower risk um, I mean that that simply doesn't doesn't make sense to me. I'd say it's the opposite. In fact, the bigger the fund is, the more likely they are to have liquidity issues, the more likely they are to present some kind of systemic risk. Um, you know, if you look at the case of, of Neil Woodford, you know, many people say, well, this is an argument against boutique funds. But I mean, Woodford Asset Management was hardly a boutique. They had over 10 billion in assets at their, at their peak. Um, it was, uh, you know, and I think the regulator has kind of used, used that that story to their own ends as an argument against small funds rather than actually looking at the kind of core causes um, of it. So I, I think, you know, there's there's absolutely no nothing behind the argument that a large fund presents lower risk. It's exactly the opposite. And um, speaking of the, the regulator that you just mentioned, um, it, it seems it's angling for, for fewer larger operators um, because it's supposedly easier um, to regulate. It's the same thing that's happening in the, the advice industry with um, the FCA wanting um, bigger um, bigger firms um, because it's easier to regulate, supposedly. What's your stance on, on this um, sort of policy decision and how do you think small funds should sort of push against that? Well, I think that, I mean, the FCA is basically in, in breach of their you know, the FCA has got three statutory objectives, and the third one is promoting effective competition. Uh, and they undermine that by by pushing back against small firms, because that's how you create a healthy ecosystem that promotes competition. So I think, you know, unfortunately, the FCA has become effectively a dysfunctional organization. And that's not just my view. You know, the Public Accounts Committee in July published a report effectively saying the FCA has become a dysfunctional organization so you know the, the, the role of the regulator the regulator should exist to serve consumers in the market but the fca has twisted that and come to the view that really you know the market exists to make their life to make the fca's life easier you know by, by, by trying to create an environment in which they've got the least work to do rather than standing there to try and support the environment and you know promote promote competitions and competition in a healthy ecosystem um, so it's unfortunate that we, you know, we operate in a in a in a market where we have a have a you know dysfun- effectively dysfunctional regulator. And I'm sure there are, I know there are many good people um, at the FCA, but there's a you know there's a cultural issue, there's a leadership issue um, there. Um, how do small funds push against it? Well, you know, it's a kind of 
yeah. over the Goliath situation. It's not a <laughs> huge amount do, yeah. that, you know, that, that, that you can do, you know, in the face of, 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 of the regulators. So I think, you know, we just have to, small fund managers, you know, just have to keep on doing what they do best, which is to provide you know, interesting, differentiated products that fill um, gaps, niches um, in, in the market um, and, you know, let the, let the market uh, decide whether there is an appetite for those for those funds mm-hmm. and products. And so how do you suggest that small funds kind of remain competitive and, and attractive? Is it just by making sure that they um, kind of get good returns? <laughs> well, how do you kind of remain competitive when there's a... Yeah, I mean, I think the key... Yeah, I mean, the key the, the key point is, is dif- differentiation, I think, and finding, you know, these maybe less liquid pockets where there are interesting kind of returns to be had. Um, interesting strategies to to execute. So I think that there there will always be um, a role for smaller funds because there'll always be inefficient pockets of the market that can't be accessed um, by 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 bulge bracket funds. Mm-hmm. So it's about kind of differentiating themselves and finding that kind of unique um, characteristic in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so we've we've talked about the the sort of advantages of, of small funds over over mm. bigger ones, um, but obviously we also have to talk about the sort of drawbacks of it. Um, what do you think are some of the disadvantages of small funds, and how do you mitigate those? Yeah, I mean, I think the key the key disadvantage is that if the fund is too small, there is an operational risk angle. So, you know, the the fund has to work as a as a business ultimately so i think that there is you know a, a sweet spot it will depend on the cost base of the manager um but there's maybe a you know as an end will depend on the asset class that they're operating in and the, you know the, the the market environment but you know somewhere between 50 and 150 million possibly is 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 a, this this kind of sweet spot where the fund is large enough that the business and operational risk you know takes care of itself um and it's still small and nimble enough to take advantage of differentiated or or less liquid opportunities mm-hmm. okay um and um so a lot of our listeners are not particularly kind of investment experts but how would you sort of sell the idea of, of prioritizing smaller funds to an advisor who may not be an expert in this area? How would you how would you try and sell it? I mean, I think from the advisor's perspective, um, small funds have a purpose in so far as they can allow the advisor to provide a point of differentiation for their client. So they can say, well, rather than you know, going to a competitor where they're going to offer you these funds from Fidelity and Avesco and Jupiter and, you know, the kind of bulge bracket managers. Um, actually, I've got this other list of really interesting funds that you probably haven't heard of before that are doing something different uh, where I think there's an opportunity to to add them to your, you know, to, to, to your portfolio and to provide differentiated returns. So I think that's, you know, that's a key, one key selling point. I think, you know, um, as an advisor, if you're interested in allocating to managers who are kind of following their passion rather than following following the money, then you know I think you should think about about small funds. And if you're kind of interested in supporting the you know the Davids over the Goliaths, then you should think about think about small funds. 
Okay, I see. Hopefully that is a self-speech that works <laughs> for our listeners. Um, but um, at the at the beginning of our, of the episode, um, I mentioned that you there was two kind of problems in the fund industry that you um, you had opinions on, and the first one being fund size, and the second being the, the fee structures and how they're not always kind of beneficial um, to to investors. Can you um, tell me a little bit more about that and your your opinions on on that specific topic? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think an issue certainly when we launched the the, the fund um, um, has, is is that of kind of closet trackers. So funds which are so large that effectively their performance is always going to be benchmark plus or minus a couple of percent, but they charge kind of active management fees. You know, maybe they charge you know, 80 basis points, 1% annual management fee for effectively doing what the client could do um, in a much lower cost way with a with a tracker fund or an ETF. So I think that's a key, a key issue in the industry. And so we've decided, we designed our fee structure to kind of overcome that issue and to try and kind of show that it's possible to incentivize the manager to um, provide a kind of dif- differentiated um, returns. And so our fee structure is based around a, a very low annual management charge. At the moment, we've got a 15 basis point AMC. Um, and uh, so effectively, you know, if we perform like a tracker fund, then we will be paid like a tracker fund. Um, and then we have a performance fee on top of that. Uh, the performance fee um, only kicks in uh, if we're above our high watermark and we beat our benchmarks, so we've got to deliver positive absolute and relative performance in order to earn the, the performance fee. Um, and I think that, you know, this kind of fee structure of pairing um, a very low tracker type AMC with a performance fee uh, means that the manager of a high performing but capacity constrained strategy um, can be compensated similarly to the manager of a benchmark performing high capacity strategy. And so where do you think the industry is heading in terms of both fund size and fee structure? How do you see the sort of landscape evolving in that regard? Yeah, I I think in terms of, I mean, fee structures, there's definitely, you know, we now have ETFs that that effectively have, you know, as kind of zero AMC or as close to as. So, you know, I, th- I think that kind of fees have gone a long way in terms of the journey that they they need to go on, and I think you end up, you know, you you it put you 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 go towards more of a kind of barbell setup where you have very low cost tracker funds, um, and then you have uh, more differentiated niche products um, that 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 um, can justify you know charging higher fees. Um, I think in terms of kind of industry size, I don't think it's really a kind of linear journey. I think there are, you know, cycles in the industry. You know, what we have seen in recent years is more advisors looking to differentiate themselves. You know, there's been a lot of consolidation in the industry. A lot of advisors have found themselves pushed more towards centralized lists. Um, and that journey can only go so far until people, you know, clients say, well, we're just getting offered all of these, you know, same lists by, you know, wh- where's the differentiation between these different advisors when they're all picking off the same lists? Um, and so that then, you know, creates an incentive for some perhaps more entrepreneurial advisors to start 
you know, to developing more interesting lists, um, you know, some individuals to go off list or offer their clients, you know, kind of lists of funds that, that they don't see elsewhere. And that then, you know, creates a market for smaller funds. And, and um, you know, I think there's, there's certainly a, a number of um, what I call multi-boutiques um, that are gaining traction at the moment. So these are um, small fund houses that are set up to provide a home for these um, kind of more niche boutique type managers. You know, the, the more successful of those multi-boutiques are probably the bulge bracket managers of, you know, of tomorrow. So, you know, you, there's a kind of cycle, you know, basically that, 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 uh, that, that goes on, um, I think. But I think we're, you know, at a, at a point where there is probably more, although, you know, clearly not from the FCA perspective, but elsewhere in the industry, I think there's a recognition of the benefit of small managers. And we're seeing that in, in, in um, the emergence of more of these kind of multi-boutique type firms to support um, boutique managers on that, on that journey. Right. So in your opinion, the future is bright for, for Cape Wrath Capital and, and other other small funds. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I think that's um, a great um, note to end on, actually. So, um, Adam, thank you so much for uh, being here and thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, if you'd like to get in contact with us about this episode, uh, we're on Twitter at New Model Advisor uh, or feel free to get in contact with me, mcmelly at citywire.co.uk. Um, thanks again, everyone. Um, thank you, Adam. And we will see you next week. <laughs> This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk.